The following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. Today, I'm joined by Andy Bryant of Alma PR for a conversation with Morgan Tilbrook, the founder and CEO of AlphaFX. Alpha provides FX risk management and alternative banking solutions to large companies and financial institutions and has grown strongly since IPO in 2017. Morgan talks about how his dyslexia helped him solve real-world problems from a young age and has been a key driver to his entrepreneurial success. He also discusses how the application of technology and high-performing people can deliver complex financial solutions to their customers and how the changing landscape of banking and money can provide further opportunity. In today's episode, we learn how Alpha FX is reducing complexity in its own business by adopting a fully decentralized structure so it can focus more readily on the needs of its customers. Morgan also talks openly about how he is driven by a fear of failure and an imposter syndrome, and how he considers the greatest attribute a young person can develop in life is self-awareness. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, Morgan Tilbrook. So hi, Morgan. Can we start with a bit of a delve into your past? Can you share a bit of your early life, your background, and how you came to be an entrepreneur? School definitely wasn't kind to me. I was uh, highly dyslexic, still am. And because of that, you know, learning school is a real challenge. But on the plus side, it makes you focus on your strengths. You know, I was very good at maths, but, you know, terrible at English. And I think it made me naturally good at trusting people and building teams. And, you know, being an entrepreneur, I think, first and foremost, is about surrounding yourself with good people and elevating those people and trusting them to take on responsibility so you can focus on other things and grow the business. So, you know, I think that my key strength as an entrepreneur is definitely spotting talent and surrounding myself with that talent and, I put a lot of that down to my dyslexia. I really do. My father sold his business when he was about 45. We retired onto a farm and I got taught the work ethic of a farm hand at a very young age. So my work ethic definitely came from the farm. And that was probably my first business venture, actually. I started buying and selling sheep. <laughs> so I went from buying and selling sheep to being in financial services. So quite a contrast. But uh, the upbringing on the farm was also uh, quite influential in my younger years. When I met you, you know, you'd already been an entrepreneur and you'd already sort of started and built businesses. So how many different companies have you started and did you ever have a regular job? I had a regular job for six months. So I do know what it feels like to have a boss. Yeah, it lasted six months and quite quickly realized that, you know, I wanted to be independent and do things my way. And, you know, constantly were getting ideas that I wanted to, to go off and pursue. So, you know, going back to your original question, how many businesses? Well, I've definitely lost count. <laughs> but, you know, some have been successful, some haven't. Alphaways, without question, my most successful venture. But I've learned from all of them. And I think it's a crime to not try. I'm definitely somebody that thinks in pictures, as in, you know, I'm a big picture thinker. I'm not a detailed person. And we always try to oversimplify things. Again, you know, I think it's a strength of being dyslexic. So often we jump into ventures with very light planning without fear and we figure things out on the job. And I think to be honest, when you know, I set out for it back in 2009, it was in the middle of the financial crisis. I had no experience in financial services and everybody thought I was absolutely crazy to be launching a business within this space. And I think to be honest, had I stopped to really think about it and plan, I would have, I would have scared myself out of doing it. You know, I really would have done. Beyond that, when did you think this is going to be something big? 
Or do you never get to that stage? Did you always just live in the moment with it? Or was there a point where you thought, actually, this could be really sustainable and a big opportunity? I used to think a billion pound business was big. <laughs> and now I don't, obviously, because you know, we're, we're, our market cuts were on about 800 million, 750, whatever it is today. So I think your ambitions and what you think you know, your business is capable of changes as your capabilities change and as you as individuals change. So I think that that is a moving target, so to speak. But going back into the early days, we spotted an opportunity whereby most of the non-bank providers were very market-focused. They still are very market-focused and not so focused on having what I would call business conversations and actually understanding why businesses struggle with managing FX and how we could really solve that pain. So we set our front with the intention of being a more consultative service. You know, we'd focus on the markets to a degree, but we'd also look at them as a big distraction from the client's point of view and actually really focus on clients changing their behaviours and how they go about managing FX risk and understanding that risk and teaching and coaching our team to have business conversations, not sales conversations. That was kind of where it all started. And you know, it was difficult in the early years because we probably tried to over-formalize our approach. And then we realized that, you know, humans are fallible. And if you try to straightjacket, you know, a decision maker too much with FX policy, then actually you won't win any customers. You've got to accept the humans are humans. So we had to find a real balance between trying to help businesses be more sophisticated in their approach, but also accepting that humans like to make value-based judgments of where the market's going to go. And, and finding that balance was difficult, but we've definitely found it now. And I think when we started to really see the success of that, getting that balance right was when I think we were confident we were onto something. And I think that's when we started to really differentiate ourselves because we built a culture which was different. It wasn't your typical sales culture and financial services. It was a genuine consultative culture. And I think that's when we knew that we were onto something. And Morgan, do you think that differentiation, which you just described, has changed over the last few years? Is that still your main differentiation, do you think, today? I think we probably have to recognise there's, there's kind of two revenue streams within our for now. We have the alternative banking and we have the FX risk management. So I'd say that if you look at the FX risk management businesses, you know, it's 80% front office staff and 20% operations. And if you look at the other side of the business, which is alternative banking, it's 90% operations and 10% front office. So they're very, very different businesses, which is why we decentralized, because we realized that, you know, we needed to have independent strategies and independent teams for both of those divisions. Because, you know, I think, you know, decentralization in its simplest form is basically focusing on two types of clients and having focus on those two propositions and making sure that you can win within your space by being agile and focused and not kind of being a centralized beast where decisions are slow and clients get lost in the system and so forth. So we do have two businesses now, but on the FX risk management side, you know, absolutely, I'd say our differentiation is still with that question of quality of our people and the culture that supports those people and amplifies those people. I was initially very confused as to whether you were a tech business or a financial services business. I can remember that pivotal moment when sort of first realized the scale of the opportunity that you had, because you were clearly both. You seem to think like a tech business in terms of improving efficiencies, doing things better, solving problems for customers, but operating in the world of, well, FX, but obviously now, as you mentioned, it's banking payments as well as managing FX exposure. Is that the key point of differentiation? And Still, when I think of you, I find it hard to categorize you because the way you operate, I just think tech. Is it fintech? Is it financial services? It's just fascinating, but it's difficult to pigeonhole you, in my opinion. Yeah, I think a lot of people struggle to pigeonhole us. And I think also that you know, the market dynamics nowadays also don't help because you know, if you look at a lot of fintech, it's typically focused on solving simple issues. So if you take a nutmeg, for example, it's not going to serve as high net worth individuals. 
is going to service people that might work with Hargreaves, Lansdowne or, or so forth. And I think people try to almost pigeonhole it into being like a Revolut or a, a Nutmeg or a, and those businesses. I think sometimes, you know, investors and also just people in general, they look at Alpha and they struggle to understand the difference. And, you know, we're not servicing small corporates. We're servicing large corporates and funds institutions. And what they need is they need a service that helps them identify the optimal solution. But we also need technology to enable that solution. So, you know, I always look at it being that we know we're technology enabled, but we need intelligent human interaction to deliver that service. And if you've got the two that overlay each other, then you've got something which is more defendable, you know, an enduring growth story. So, you know, we're not a fintech that's solving a simple problem, which is driving efficiencies because the bank's systems are old and therefore there's a bit of arbitrage. We provide better service in the bank in regards to the quality of our people and how we advise clients. But we also provide better technology. I mean, bring both together that's when you generate results like Alpha has. I much prefer businesses like that because they're much more difficult to emulate and copy because they're culture-driven. And it's no different to looking at a lawyer. You know, why does one lawyer earn £1,000 an hour and £100 an hour? They're better at solving complex problems. And that's an admission that there's more complexity than can be dealt with just with an algorithm. What you're saying is what you do today for your large and loyal corporate customers couldn't be done by algorithm. A chatbot on the website that you know that pops up and you talk to. I can't imagine a two hundred million pound turnover corporate is going to be happy when we tell them to talk to the chatbot. You're striving to solve complexity, therefore you need good level tech and you need high quality human beings. Absolutely, and that's changed as the business has matured. So originally we needed intelligent human interaction predominantly for FX risk management on the front office side, dealing with the clients. But if you look at the alternative banking side, you know, we're banking a lot of funds now, funds institutions and the SPV structures. And these are complex fund structures that require intelligent compliance personnel and high quality client services teams. And so, we, you know, it's quite exciting the fact that we're now focusing on building high performance teams within operational functions as well on mass obviously you know our finance team our risk team our credit team they're also high performing teams too but sales has always been that big team so to speak that was kind of the core focus for the high performance and actually now we're realizing the importance of having high performing compliance teams and client services teams as we build out our banking service because you know same again you know Revolut will bank a small corporate or a retail customer that's relatively easy to understand and on board or underwrite you know we're onboarding SPV structures in all sorts of jurisdictions around the world which have been a very complex arrangements and ownership structures and credit profiles. Morgan, talking of high-performance teams, how do you replicate the success in the UK geographically, obviously already in Canada for a couple of years and the Netherlands? Tell us about how you think about doing that and what you think the geographic opportunity is. Well, first, it's probably worth mentioning that we don't typically move to new jurisdictions because we're running out of bandwidth, that's why bandwidth are running out of runway or addressable market within the current markets. That's not the case. We typically open new jurisdictions because we've got talented people within the business that are knocking on our door asking to go to these new jurisdictions. So, you know, first and foremost, we're led by the individual. You know, I'm a big believer that you know, a high quality individual will make an average market look great and an average individual will make a, the best market look terrible. So first and foremost, you know, have we got someone that's capable, that we trust, that wants to go to that jurisdiction, at which point then we'll look to make sure the jurisdiction has enough economic benefit that it warrants the cost of investment to launch. So that's the key drivers. And the other driver would be management bandwidth. You know, we could open up in five countries tomorrow if we wanted to, but the reality is it'd be too much stretch for the management. So it's kind of two areas that drive it. You know, have we got the person that wants to go there and have we got the bandwidth? What's the secret to be able to continue as you grow, you scale, your customers grow with you or you grow with your customers? Are there more challenges, different challenges in maintaining those relationships with those bigger companies or are there new challenges that you need to sort of address in this process? 
definitely the latter. It's, it's new challenges. You know, the reason we decentralised was recognising that we did have two very different businesses, not that they don't complement each other. You know, the, the banking business is highly cash generative, which provides working capital for the hedging business to provide bigger credit lines. So there's lovely complementing factors that occur because of the divisions. But we are talking about businesses, you know, one business has got, you know, a large high performing front office sales team and one that's got a very, very small sales team, but a very, very large tech team. I think our tech team now is probably circa 70 people in total. So it's a significant size now. So there's a lot more technology focus on the banking division because it's a lot about scaling large volumes of payments and integrating, you know, with some of our fund administrator partners and so forth. So it's very much a different challenge, so to speak. And, you know, it's very much an ambition of ours to become the global leader of banking solutions to the alternative investment market. And when I say alternative investment market, into about private equity, infrastructure and tech and so forth. Which is obviously rapidly growing. I mean. Yeah, which is rapidly growing. And, you know, I think that the reputation of Alpha within that space is growing exponentially at the moment. And, you know, we're investing significantly within this opportunity. You've spoken about how you've been working to decentralise the business. Can you just explain why you've done this and what's the significance of it, please? Decentralisation, it really does mean decentralisation in this case. It's, you know, it's not just a tech stack, it's the people, the teams, T's and C's, it's strategies, and the value is just incredible, actually. I mean, it's a, I look back at it now, I think it's the best decision that I've ever made in the business in its 12 years of existence. I think if you want to be a number one player, you have to have focus on your customers. You need to have differentiated proposition. And when you are centralized, you know, your strategies and your teams are compromised. You know, they're not focusing on their own mission. So, you know, how it translates to value to internal and external shareholders is the fact that we've got people that are dedicated on delivering for these two markets without compromise. You compete against banks in what you do. You partner with banks. And so you position yourself alongside some of the biggest banks. Is this always going to be a long-term win-win for you? Or are there risks associated with this strategy? Can you avoid becoming a bank? Will you ultimately need to be a bank? Yes, I think we can continue to avoid being a bank. I mean, a lot of the global kind of fintech regulations are enabling that so innovation moves at a faster pace and therefore, you know, can produce faster GDP globally. I don't think the regulators want to take away this advantage that fintechs have. Going back to your original question about potentially being reliant on the banks, is this a win-win long-term? As Alpha becomes bigger, we have more clout. So if anything, providing we manage our governance accordingly and you know our anti-money laundering and so forth, there's, there's no reason why banks won't want to serve as Alpha. As the flow gets larger, we become more valuable to a banking partner. So I don't see that being a concern. You know, and I think it'd be interesting to see how central bank digital currencies unfold because as we do start to see, you know, decentralized finance and central bank digital currencies come into practice, so to speak, that's kind of probably disrupt the banks more than it is us. If anything, it's probably an opportunity for us because, you know, we'll just plug in directly to the Bank of England as opposed to leveraging a bank. So the banking landscape can change. You're essentially a reseller in some of what you do of the sort of yeah, we rely banks. on banking rails. So, you know, the, the banks at the moment have their rails, but if we see decentralized finance and digital currencies at you know, central bank level, then in theory, that reduces the value of the rails that the banks have. And I think that excites me because if we do see that unfold, then that provides a big opportunity for businesses like Alpha. And I think actually businesses like Alpha that are well-established, that have got big balance sheets and, you know, strong reputations, that'll play well for us. The world's changed. You know, there's more opportunity. There's lots of exciting places for people to work. And therefore, I don't think the banks attract the talent like they used to. You know, I think Alpha has a platform that can attract talent more easily than a typical UK bank, whether that be Barclays or Lloyds or HSBC. And I think, you know, therefore we have a high caliber of people and, and also an environment that's more entrepreneurial. 
you know, it gives people the ability to spread their wings faster and learn and grow faster because the nature of a bank is that they're so heavily regulated and they're frightened of doing anything and they've got lots of legacy systems and legacy legals. And I mean, people think of the banks having legacy technology. The reality is they're big, complex beasts with lots of systems that are integrated to each other. And that's the reality of the banking landscape. So it's not something they're not choosing to service the space. I think they've just got a lot on, <laughs> a lot on and the world's moving fast. Well, survival being one of them since the financial crisis, that sort of changes. They've been, they've been the whipping boy, haven't they? They've, they've, yeah, they've of course. Been, you know, they've been constantly the whipping boy, which I do feel sorry for the banks in that regard. And, but that's you know. been your opportunity since you set up Alpha. You're describing a move that could happen towards decentralized finance, central bank, digital currency. That would provide opportunity for the next wave of disruptors, the next wave of people who can take advantage of that changing landscape. That's clearly an opportunity for you, but it also might represent a threat. Do you spend any of your time looking behind you and thinking, this is an interesting model, this is an interesting way that we need to just watch out for? Is that something that concerns you or are you just focused on driving your business forward? We definitely do more research now than we ever have done, you know, because we've got the capabilities internally, the management teams in place that enables me to have more time to focus on such things. But I think, you know, first and foremost, focus on your customers because that's how you're going to find out what people need. However, you have got people that Steve Jobs out there that go and invent the iPod that the customers didn't even know was something yes. they needed. <laughs> so yeah. there's yeah. two types of innovation. So, you know, of course we research and we try to identify what our customers want by talking to them directly. But then we also try to ensure that we can stay in a position we can move fast. So I think trying to guess what the next big thing is, for me, is probably not the smartest of things to do. I think the smart thing to do is, is how do we make sure that our platform, our capabilities are in a position that when opportunities do arise, that we can move fast. So a bit like a bank now would struggle to move fast, as fast as Alpha, how do we make sure as Alpha's capabilities grow in the future that we don't fall into that same trap? So remaining agile and entrepreneurial while having a big balance sheet is, for me, absolutely critical. And my view is I'm not going to try and guess the next thing. I'm going to research, read, meet people. But really what I'm going to focus on is making sure we've got a platform that when new things happen, a startup may enter the market, but they're not going to have £110 million balance sheet. They're not going to be highly profitable. They're not going to have a huge talent base, a sophisticated technology team that can develop fast. I think the key is, is keep the foundations in the position whereby you can build fast and move fast. And if you go back, Morgan, a year, you were in the middle of a sort of perfect storm when you have lockdowns, you had big, massive FX moves, you had clients trying to collect cash. You know, what did you learn from those events and how you manage risk at Alpha now and going forward? Talking about our first banana skin. <laughs> uh, yes. um, yeah, we had a big banana skin in March time. We've got good processes in place from a risk governance point of view. And I actually really enjoy risk committees because I think they're really insightful. There's a strong challenge across the business. But, you know, you can't always predict all risks and some, you know, humble you to a degree. And, you know, we got caught out with what was a couple of black swans. You know, we saw some huge volatility in one of our largest exposures, which was in the Norwegian Corona. You know, we saw oil hit zero at the same time as the pandemic kickoff, so to speak, within Europe and the US. And we saw some significant swings, ones that were far in excess of what we've ever modeled for historically. And, you know, historically in our processes, we always modeled the volatility risk off previous records and would look at big events in the past. And we thought we had it well managed, but we learned that you can actually be involved in setting new records. <laughs> um, and there's no point in feeling sorry for yourself at that, that point in time. You have to remember that you have to prepare, as our chairman said, prepare for the worst and some more. And, you know, we had a big client and the market moved 
set new, it was, I think it was the biggest move for a G10 currency in history. And it was extraordinary moves. And, and the client couldn't cover its margin call. The key thing is that our credit underwriting was on point because the client has, you know, has paid us back now, you know, over 20 of the 30 million near enough that they owed us. And the, the last 10 million will come in between now and May next year. But, you know, it was a typical liquidity scenario. Most businesses, when they do have issues, it's liquidity based. And, you know, our client couldn't settle the margin call to us because their customers, which were big blue chip supermarkets, weren't setting their invoices because all their staff had been sent home to work in COVID. So they were owed tens and tens and tens of millions of pounds in invoices and weren't receiving any cash. And we were stuck in a position where we had to close the positions, which was, you know, very frustrating because we knew the client had a very strong balance sheet and the money would come in, but we couldn't leave the positions open because, you know, markets can be irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So, you know, it made it a very difficult situation for, for us and that client, but we're still friends with that client and speak to them regularly and, you know, and both recognize it was an unfortunate set of circumstances. The, the key is what have we learned from that? And we've learned that client concentration, regardless of the quality of the business, is irrelevant because you can have a business of that quality credit rating. It can themselves can still get caught out with liquidity because of an event like COVID. So now we have strict concentration limits to our clients and we publish those limits on our website every six months. So our investors and clients can see that, you know, that we've taken that banana skin seriously and we've reduced that concentration amongst other things, you know, some circuit breakers in place and some other controls that enable us to manage that risk more effectively. But at the same time, also not, you know, reduce our risk appetite. We have to recognize that that was a, a rare set of circumstances and fast growth businesses have to take some risk. So risk is healthy. It's just making sure that, you know, that you're in a position that you can survive events like that, which obviously we did and we've come out stronger and wiser for it. So Morgan, today you have those sort of two divisions, corporate FX risk management and alternative banking. But if you look out five, 10 years, do you think there'll be more? Yeah, I do. I do think there'll be more. I think that now we've decentralized. I think we kind of look at the PLC as being kind of the centralized group company, so to speak. And then we have these two divisions that sit beneath with their own managing directors and strategies and dedicated tech teams and resources and so forth. And I feel that the amount of talent that we accumulate at Alpha and the culture that we have, you know, it's just inevitable that we're going to have more ideas that come to the forefront that we'd like to support. And that is something that excites me as the founder of Alpha. And I think that providing opportunities for our people is key because, you know, as I said earlier, there's no point accumulating all of this talent if we're not going to provide them exciting opportunities to spread their wings and leverage our capabilities. And as long as we stay decentralized, it should be the right framework from which we can continue to diversify and launch more divisions. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to take the eye off the ball of these two current investments. There's this huge amounts of opportunity there and we need to be mindful of managing bandwidth. So we're not rushing out there to become a group of companies, but we're open to the fact that, you know, we've got a great platform and a lot of talent. On the subject of culture and talent, you know, as you scale now, decentralize new geographies, new products, I mean, how on earth do you retain that culture going forward or develop it further? You said the word retain, I find that's an interesting word, really, because I'd actually say that the last thing I want to do is retain it. I want want to move it forward and evolve it. I think we've actually really started to do that now more than ever. If you ask me to articulate what a high-performing culture was two, three years ago, I don't think I could do it anywhere near as well as I could now. And and that's probably because we've spent more time focusing on it. And we've also hired some global leading experts that coach teams like the All Blacks and Says F1 to support us in taking our culture to the next level. But I, you know, I remember the first session with a chap called Kerry Evans, who's one of our internal coaches. And he asked us all to write down what a high-performing culture was. And we all sat there and wrote it down on a post-it. And he kind of turned around and said, well, isn't it not just somewhere where everyone's getting better? Tall order, you know, very difficult to have a culture where everyone's getting better. But is that not what you should be striving for? And that is the definition of a high-performing culture. And we all kind of went, God, that's a really simple way of putting it. <laughs> 
we're now on this journey of like, how do we create this business and this culture where literally everybody knows what their next level of performance is and everybody's getting better. You know, it's an ongoing, never-ending crusade, but it's one that we're fully committed to and one that we believe will enable us to build a sustainable, high-performing culture. The key areas that we need to really focus on as we scale and become global is making sure we've got a culture where people feel free and empowered to speak up. Yeah, it's no good that if I've got talented people in a new jurisdiction and they're seeing blind spots of their leader and you know they don't feel comfortable to challenge the leader or to pick up the phone to me to talk about these blind spots that this leader has, then how are we going to retain this culture? So I think the first principle starts with just having an environment where people feel safe and secure to challenge up and across, contribute their ideas, will include being creative and calling out blind spots, you know, and the uncomfortable truths and inconvenient facts, so to speak. I think we'll have a culture that makes our previous culture look pretty poor in the near future. I really do believe that. One of the personal challenges for you in this journey, I can see that you really embrace change and the opportunity that change brings. But just wonder if you give a couple of insights in how you've adapted to the role of running a listed business. I have a huge fear of failure. That's always driven me from day one. And it probably links back to my dyslexia, a huge fear of failure and definitely suffer from imposter syndrome. And the trouble is when your business is growing at 50% every year, like it has done near enough for the past 12 years or now, now 13 years, your imposter syndrome just moves with the moving target because the business just gets bigger. So, <laughs> you know, I wasn't, yeah. you know, worthy of running a hundred million pound business now to 200, now to three and, <laughs> and it will carry on forever. But I think that fear of failure and, and imposter syndrome, I wouldn't take it away because it's what makes me, me, but I have seeked some external counseling, coaching from somebody actually over the past 12 months on that. And it's actually really helped me manage it more effectively and, and therefore be a better version of myself from a leadership point of view. I take having public shareholders very seriously. And I take the pride of Alpha's journey very seriously. It's not ego driven, but the thought of Alpha never not being a good story scares the life out of me. On the subject of that sort of personal drive, I mean, you clearly employ now some very educated and qualified people at Alpha, but you actually didn't go to university yourself. So what sort of advice would you give young people now when they're turning up to try and enter the workplace at Alpha or indeed anywhere else? I think self-awareness. I think that when you're 18, 19, you know, or 21, you know, leaving university, you're going on this huge learning curve and self-awareness is basically the biggest learning curve of life. And how do you bring it forward? How do you expedite it? You know, how do you learn quicker? And I think, you know, that comes with, you know, embracing the uncomfortable truths, inconvenient facts about yourself as an individual. And I think also making it really easy for your boss or your coworkers to call you out and invite them to do it. People don't go out of their way to highlight your shortcomings because it's an awkward conversation. And I think that if you're leaving university and you're going to a workplace and you can create an environment where your co-workers and your bosses, so to speak, actually find it easy to give you feedback to therefore make you more self-aware, you probably, I don't think, going to find a much quicker way to evolve and grow and develop. And of course, obviously, you know, read, you know, reading's important. On that journey, Morgan, what have you changed your mind about? Do you look at the world differently? I mentioned it earlier. I used to think that a billion pound business was big. <laughs> yes. And I think now I sit here today thinking how many businesses are in a position like Alpha where we are cash rich, debt free, highly profitable, full of talent, decentralized, still founder led, which, you know, has its benefits. The list goes on. And, you know, I think a lot of businesses, they don't often get to this level of scale with this level of capabilities, yet still have all of that kind of startup. And I think I've learned now to actually don't underestimate a good quality business that's acting long term. You know, don't have limiting beliefs and the potential that can create. 
And part of my town hall was, was making sure that the team didn't have limiting beliefs because we were a startup, we were small within this space and we're now kind of one of the largest, if not the largest, especially in the UK, definitely the largest, but one of the largest globally non-bank providers now of FX services. And I said, it's really important that we don't have self-limiting beliefs that we now feel we're a big business because we're one of the biggest. We just need to believe that actually that those competitors were never big in the first place and they're going to look tiny in the future to us. And so I think, you know, it's taught me that potentially be more ambitious than I originally thought and don't underestimate the capabilities that you gather if you do things the right way. Morgan, thanks so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed the chance to catch up with you. Thank you for sharing so much about the amazing journey you've been on from the inception of AlphaFX to date. Hopefully we can have another chance to have a similar conversation in the not too distant future, but thank you very much. No, thank you for your time. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Morgan. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com, where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. 